That's Acts 27, starting at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandra sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, as the winds did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Corda. We managed, with difficulty, to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Acts 27, continuing at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. 
When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So let me ask, what has been your closest brush with death? It's probably something really straightforward when you were just walking down a London street and a lorry thundered past one foot away. But I expect there are particular moments that stick in your mind as that brush with death. I can think of two in particular. Once I woke up and I unexpectedly found myself in a recovery ward of the Royal London Hospital. So later I discovered what had happened and it had been a close brush. It had been touch and go, according to the doctor. Another time, I took a flight in a very small plane over the sea. After takeoff, the wind picked up. We were buffeted. We were pushed to and forth. I was young and naive. I was a teenager. I thought this was great fun. But afterwards, we landed. The pilot looked white. He told me he was convinced he was not going to be able to bring it down safely. Well, ask Luke, the writer of this story in Acts, whether he had had a near-death experience. And he'd say, didn't you read chapter 27? Notice how he begins in verse 1. Verse 1, we should set sail. Or verse 2, we put out to sea. Do you see what Luke is saying? He was there. 
And that fits, doesn't it, with what we've just heard, with all these details that we are given, lots of them, about boats and locations and wind directions and people and what happened when. This is an eyewitness account of someone who was there but has somehow lived to tell the tale. And all these details are there for more than that, not just to show they're from an eyewitness. Luke has recorded them for us because, well, he wants us to realize why they make sense for him to make this, if you like, the climax of his two-volume work, Luke and Acts. But if I've just told you this is the climax of this great work of Luke, you might be a bit puzzled. Did you notice in this chapter not a single reference to Jesus or Christ or Lord? And with that, no explicit reference to sin or death or resurrection. Even though we're thinking if this is the climax to Luke's work, surely that's what it's going to be about. So what's going on? Well, to appreciate it, for a start, we do have to keep in mind all that's come before. Remember, we are at the end of the book, and Luke, our author, is expecting that we've read this far. So I'm now going to pick out some highlights for us from Luke and Acts so far. Not everything by any means, don't worry. But the things I say, do keep them in mind, because you'll see why when we then look at Acts 28. So your mind back to the beginning of Luke's gospel. It's nighttime, an angel appears to shepherds in the field and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. First key phrase, fear not. Second, a Saviour. Third key word, the Lord. The baby grows up. We get to Luke 5. Do you remember the story where Jesus is in a boat? pushed out from the shore. What's he doing from the boat? Teaching the word of God. Then we get to Luke 8, that life-threatening storm on the sea, on the lake, again in a boat. Remember, all the disciples, fishermen are convinced they will perish. But Jesus miraculously brings them through. It's quite striking to notice that account in Luke's gospel gets four verses, whereas Acts 27 gets 44 because Luke was there in Acts 27. Carrying on in Luke, Luke chapter 9, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And this is the journey that will now take the rest of Luke's gospel. And on the way, do you remember, Jesus taught. He declared repeatedly what would happen to him. He was going to suffer. And it would lead, predictioned many times, to death and his resurrection. And as he went, he also described what the future would hold. He says this, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the water, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. Judgment coming. What will that look like? Well, remember what he says, sky will change, the seas will roar, people will be afraid. But in the midst of that, he promises his disciples, not a hair of your head will perish. Well, teaching over, Jesus reaches Jerusalem, and you'll know what happens there. He's opposed, isn't he, by the Jewish authorities and the people. He's then put on trial before both a Roman governor and a Jewish king called Herod. The crowd is screaming away with this man. Sure enough, just as Jesus said, he died and then rose again. 
So that's Luke's gospel. But then Luke keeps writing and gives us the book of Acts. This is more fresh, maybe, in our minds. Remember the start of the book. Jesus sets the agenda. To his disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And haven't we seen over these last few weeks how through Acts, the word of God spreads, it multiplies, it increases, and the word of the Lord, we're told, prevails mightily. Along the way, in Acts 9, we are introduced to the Apostle Paul, that dramatic appearance of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul then is appointed prophet of the Almighty God with a specific role of carrying the Lord's name to the nations. As we then follow Paul's exploits, we've noticed, haven't we, parallels to Jesus, so many of them. Paul is on this journey also to Jerusalem, but then also to Rome. Repeatedly, we're told, Paul will suffer. Again, predictions of what's going to happen at the destination. Not for Paul, death and resurrection, but that he will testify before Caesar. And what happens when Paul does reach Jerusalem? He is opposed by the people and the authorities. He stands trial before the Roman governor and the Jewish king Herod. The crowd again shout, away with him. And that whirlwind tour brings us back now to Acts 27. And now, therefore, if you've read this far, what are you now expecting? Well, if you've noticed all those parallels between Luke's gospel and Acts, between Jesus and Paul, this is the moment where we think, well, there should be a death and resurrection. But of course, we know Jesus' death and resurrection were unique only for him. But still here at the end of Acts, we can be shown what the death and resurrection of Jesus have achieved for us to see that. Well, there are so many details in Acts 27, we are not going to go through them all. But a key verse for us is verse 24. Have a look down with me. In the midst of this storm, an angel appears to Paul and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So this verse points us to two fundamental truths at the heart of this chapter, and in fact, at the heart of all of Luke and Acts. First, Jesus is Lord. Coming to the end of our series in Acts, are you persuaded that Jesus is Lord? I don't just mean in here on a Sunday when most of us here will tick that box. I mean out there through the week. Who or what really calls the shots? in your life? Is it, in the end, the demands of your boss? Is it what the authorities tell us to do? Is it the expectations of your family? The pursuit of financial security? Whatever it looks like for us, essentially, when we get out there and in the midst of life, do we just feel compelled to fit in and to go along with the ways of the world? We just tell ourselves that's just the way that it is. Or is it? Have we taken on board the message of Acts? At the beginning of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus shows Jesus is Lord. The very first words of the disciples to Jesus in the book of Acts, Lord. Jesus ascends into heaven to be enthroned 
as Lord. The disciples then proclaim again and again that Jesus is Lord. We've seen the word of the Lord spreading further and further beyond Jerusalem. Remember, Peter told Cornelius the centurion in Caesarea, Jesus is Lord of all. The truth, the message for all the world is unmistakable. Jesus is Lord. And along the way, we've seen so many who act as if he isn't. We've seen the religious establishment opposing the Lordship of Christ, as we do today. We've seen lots of people serving their own gods, like Zeus or Hermes or Artemis or money or prestige or money. All of these ways, again, we see today. And then we read on in Acts, and if you like, the ways of rejecting the lordship of Christ are slowly summed up in one way, Rome. That is the Roman Empire. Because in the first century Mediterranean world, everybody assumed that's simply the way it is. Rome rules the world. So whatever you did, however you lived your life, you had to fit in with the empire. And that devotion to empire was focused in one place, again on one person, the emperor, Caesar. And this mindset is so hard to shift. And Luke showed us that actually in Acts 25. Why not flick back just briefly with me? The Roman governor Festus finds Paul innocent. Of course he did. But then Festus has a problem. He has to send Paul on to Rome But what's he going to say about why he's doing that? So look down to verse 26. He's speaking to Agrippa and he says, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. That is about Paul. Notice what Festus is doing. He's describing Caesar as my Lord. And that is outrageous. So nearly at the end of the book of Acts, there's still this idea that Caesar is Lord, that the Roman Empire is the ultimate reality for all of life. And that really is a shocking statement. Up to this point in the book of Acts, there are 85 or so references to the Lord. Every single one of them, yes, I did check, is speaking about the Lord God who's revealed himself and established Jesus as Lord. Until here in chapter 25, we get Festus saying, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about Paul. So what now needs to happen is Caesar needs to be told the truth. Not the truth about Paul from Festus but the truth about Jesus from Paul, that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So do you see how the narrative of Acts has been set up? The ultimate demonstration of the way things really are in our lives, in the world, in all the universe, are when God's appointed prophet to the nations, that is the Apostle Paul, testifies the lordship of Christ before Caesar. Well, with that in mind, look at how our chapter 27 
is introduced. Verse 1, Now when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Notice the names, Augustus, Julius. How's your history? At the time of writing, those were two recent prominent Roman emperors. So the centurion here is representing the might of the Roman Empire. So the question is, is he in charge of this boat? It soon becomes obvious, hardly. By verse 9, the boat is already, the ship is in difficulty. And they reach Fairhaven's harbour. Paul tells them to stay put. What happens? Verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So first things first, they're ignoring the prophet of God. But now who are they listening to? If not the centurion, well, he listens first to the pilot. Human ingenuity thinks. I'll make my own way through. It'll be okay. But then also, notice, money talks. There's the owner, you see. He wants his profit. The ship must sail. Well, how did that work out? Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Do you see what is being said? Money talks, but it's a terrible lord. When the storm comes, it simply can't deliver. Well, the tempest is getting all the angrier, and we're now, if you like, reaching levels like Jesus and the disciples faced on the lake back in Luke 8. And now the sea, the storm, it's all standing for heaven and earth, even the whole cosmos in this hostility towards God. Because if you like, the narrative of Acts, what is happening here is the storm in its fury is doing everything it possibly can to prevent Paul from reaching Rome, to stop him from declaring that Jesus is Lord to Caesar. But verse 24, God's angel announces, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. The angel making clear all rivals to Jesus' throne aren't really rivals at all. They must come to hear this truth. Jesus is Lord. So to spoil the story, Paul survives the storm. Of course he does. It was never in doubt. Because we know Jesus is Lord of all. All these other powers throwing their might have no power at all before the Lord Jesus. Nothing could prevent Paul getting to Rome to the heart of worldly authority to make it known who is on the throne of the universe. He came from nothing. He conquered everything. Have you seen those words around us? It's the message on all the publicity for the film Napoleon. And in that movie, the character Napoleon says he follows in the footsteps of Caesar. Napoleon asks, whose country are we in? Mine. Now, Napoleon was a remarkable man. Although, remember, 
by human standards, he didn't actually come from nothing, but nor did he conquer everything. And he's now dead. Jesus came from lowliness. He went the way of suffering and humiliation. But now he is alive and Lord, not merely of a nation or even of an empire, but Lord of all. Are you persuaded of this? Even this week, in the face of competing claims for our time, our attention, our money, our commitment, our devotion, have we got it? Jesus Christ is Lord. If we know that, we'll still do lots of the same things as other people. We'll respect many different people around us. But at the same time, everything will be different. There'll be some things others want us to do we simply won't do. We'll choose to do some things the world just won't understand. We will simply be different because we've got it. Jesus is Lord. Second, the events here in Acts 27 show us the Lord saves all his people. Let's jump back into the midst of the storm. It's getting worse and worse. So much so, verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Well, note the description, as Jesus said, would happen. The sky is changed. The sea is roaring. There is foreboding. Luke has a skill for understatement. He says no small tempest, by which he means it could not be worse. And now by verse 20, for those on the ship, this is the end. There is no let up. There's been no food for a long time. If you like, the last distress flare has been fired long ago. Back on the mainland, the press conference has announced that the rescue helicopters have been called off. The missing must now be presumed dead. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. You may recognize those words, even if you don't know that they come from Dante's Divine Comedy. And in that story, those words are engraved above the gate of hell. Now, those on the ship in Acts 27 aren't quite there yet, but they are teetering on the brink of being swallowed up by the depths, and there is nothing they can do. Except on board that ship is the prophet of God, the Apostle Paul. And through that angel, God speaks to him. And now in the second half, look, of our key verse 24, the angel says, Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Mind-bogglingly amazing. But how can it be possible? Well, back to that verse 20 summary. So from a human perspective, all hope gone. This was the end. But again, for readers of Acts, there is more. There are key words and phrases in this description. First of all, saved. We're told here all hope of being saved has been abandoned. But it turns out that word for saved now comes up seven times in this account. 
highlighting what is going to happen. Salvation. Not just from what this world can throw at us, but even from sin and evil and judgment. How does God do this saving? Well, notice again, verse 20 describes darkness during the day. Where have we seen that already? At the cross. That is how Jesus came to save the lost through his death on the cross. And then another key word in this verse, which is hope. So on board that ship, we're told, there was no hope of salvation, humanly speaking. The hope we've seen in the last few weeks is a key word in Acts, especially in Paul's trials. Acts 23, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, Paul spoke of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Then in Acts 24, before Felix, hope that there will be a resurrection. Acts 26, before Agrippa, hope that God raises the dead. This is the message of the gospel for the ends of the earth. In the Lord Jesus, there is hope, even in the face of certain death. So here we are, the moment of deepest desperation in this sea voyage. Luke wants us to think salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. But if that's the principle, who then can receive this salvation? Well, the angel says to Paul, verse 24, all those who sail with him. But then we read on, verse 27, rescue has not yet come, at least not immediately. Notice verse 27 tells us 14 days. Can you imagine drifting, being blown and buffeted by the wind for two whole weeks across the water? You are a floating coffin. You're just waiting to sink to the depths of the sea. But then verse 27, the end of that verse Could that be land? So we see some of the crew hatch a plan. They basically secretly lower a lifeboat to look after themselves as a last resort. But verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So we ask, why is it that on the ship, this ship is the only place of safety? Well, because this is where we have the prophet of God, the apostle speaking the word of God. It's the word of God that will prevail mightily. So if the word says stay, stay. Because in the face of God's judgment, only sticking with Jesus and his death and resurrection will bring you safely through. And if these do stay on the boat, if you stick with Jesus and his word, what will happen? Well, just look at the end of verse 34. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you, just as Jesus said. So we've seen Jesus is Lord. The Lord saves all his people. What's to follow? First, obviously, don't jump ship. Life is hard, isn't it? It is stormy. The challenges of living in this broken, rebellious world, 
the pressures of a hostile society cramming in. Particular trials because we live for Jesus as Lord. And as the tempests of life are blowing, as the waters we feel are rising, we think we cannot stay afloat. Do we just begin to think, I need to get off this boat? But where will we go? So we look to find the lifeboat. The kind of lifeboats that we've seen through Acts. The lifeboat of pursuing more money. The lifeboat of that particular relationship. The lifeboat of the easier life. The lifeboat of career progression. The lifeboat of another God. Or more likely, the lifeboat of a version of Christianity that might say that Jesus is Lord, but won't listen to him and doesn't live as if he is Lord. Acts 27 is saying to us, don't even think about it. Those lifeboats will not help when it comes to what really matters. They won't offer you much help in this life at the end of the day, but there will be no help at all when it comes to God's judgment. In fact, to get into the lifeboat would really be just the same as jumping off the boat into that raging ocean. Incredibly stupid, lethally dangerous. You will go under. You'll be consumed by the deep and you'll be lost forever. Whatever you do, stay on the boat. Just like that ark back in Noah's day, there is no other place of safety. So let's keep telling one another, stay safe. Stick to Jesus, the only saviour. He is Lord of all. So don't jump ship. But on the contrary, take heart. Take heart. Look again what the angel says to Paul, verse 24. Do not be afraid. But how is that possible? Verse 22, Paul says, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, which proved to be exactly right. Or Paul goes on, verse 25, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, which is precisely what happened. Again, life is hard. Stormy even. We might be tired of pushing into the wind constantly. Even we're on the edge of despair. Well, take heart. We have Jesus. Or much more to the point, Jesus has us. And therefore we have his word. God has promised. Well, he promised, didn't he, that the Christ would come to die for sins and to rise again from the dead to give to us a glorious future. And we can read Luke and Acts and see that is exactly what God did. And look at verse 36. Look at those still on the boat, still in the midst of the storm. They were all encouraged. So they know still on the ship, still in the storm, they are going to make the land alive and they are encouraged. And that is a model for us. We can be sure. God has always kept his promises, and whatever he has now promised to us, he will deliver. 
Notice as for Paul, God hasn't promised the easy life, plain sailing, far from it. We may well lose out on certain things along the way. Notice in Acts 27, the very ship was smashed to bits in the end. And yet all, every single person was brought safely to land. So do not be afraid. Take heart. The victory is assured because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And today, Jesus has hold of you. And he is Lord, so he will never let you go. And nothing else can take you out of his hand. Our glorious future with him will be exactly as we have been told. I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we do praise you that Jesus is Lord and that he will completely rescue all his people and bring us home safely to you. And so in the various trials that we may face, would we take heart? Would we continue to trust that in all you have said to us in your word, you will do? And so would we continue to live for Christ as Lord? Amen.